I'm Alan Barr, and this is Radio Free RPG. Hi, I'm not Alan Barr. But it's okay, I am. Welcome to Radio Free RPG. I'm Alan Barr, usually your host, but today we have a bonus double feature episode where my friend Will Munn from Adept Icarus is going to interview me about a game of mine he is publishing, get you some insight from my side of the table. So we're going to flip the script a little bit and Will is going to be hosting Radio Free RPG today. How are you, Will? I'm doing great. How are you? Ah, very well. Thank you for asking. Nobody ever asks. I'm kidding. They always do. <laughs> well, they should. Well, I'm excited for this. I think this is going to be very fun. I have a slate of questions to ask you. Excellent. I will try to have uh, erudite answers for you there. But before we get started, why don't you uh, give us and our listeners a small introduction to you and what you do? Sure. Uh, well, as mentioned, I'm Will Mon. Uh, I run the Adept Icarus Game Design Studio, or as sometimes called, Publishing Studio, whatever, right? But Adept Icarus. Um, some of the games that uh, we're known for is uh, Arium Create, Arium Discover, uh, and several other items that come off of that. I've personally been involved in a few other projects like Zorro, the role-playing game and, and uh, some other items like that. But essentially a few years ago, I decided I would run a Kickstarter and, and fund a really neat sort of world building concept that we'd been doing with a writing group of mine for years. Um, and it really took off and did well. And so been excited to continue to work on that and, new game ideas of which several coming out in the next year or two, but yeah, that's, that's it. Excellent. We'll have will on radio free RPG at a later date to talk more from his perspective and answer some questions. But today we are, like I said, flipping the script. It's make that'd be a better pun if this was, you know, script writing podcast. We're changing the die system. Yeah. Uh, and Will, you said you have questions. I might have answers. Let's see. You'd better have a few. So why, Alan, why on earth would you, who is definitely an expert in publishing indie RPGs, come to someone else like me and say, hey, I have a game that's kind of cool. What do you think about it? Would you be interested in publishing it? That That is the million-dollar question, and I think probably the one I get the most from other publishers when I mention that I do this. Uh, some iteration of, but you own your own publishing company. You can just do what you want. And there's, and, and I mean, arguably that is true. But there's a few reasons, <clears throat> some of which are mundane and some of which are maybe high-minded. So let's start with the boring ones. Uh, it's a lot of work. And sometimes it's nice to be able to offload some of that work on other competent people while I focus on the core competencies of maintaining gout, right? So at the core level, sometimes it's nice to say, 
marketing this game is no longer my problem. It is your problem. I'm okay with that sometimes. I write a lot of games, and if I were to wait to publish them all myself, I'd be waiting a long time for some of them, which is number two. As Gallant Night Games, I have a schedule I need to stick to, and I have certain product lines that have ongoing requirements I have to meet as a publisher. And some of these smaller one-off games don't easily fit in my schedule, and it can be beneficial for me to find uh, a home for them somewhere else because it lets them come out faster. And then, you know, there's the, I like money and it doesn't pay as well as publishing it myself where I get to keep a hundred percent of it, but it does make me money while taking work off my plate and kind of create a small backup revenue stream for myself where I am making money off stuff that I don't have to maintain every day. And that can be nice from a just a kind of a financial security standpoint, especially in an industry as tight and fluid in terms of profit margins as the RPG industry. <laughs> That's one way to put it. Yes. And then the other thing is I've been doing this for a bit, uh, coming up on 10 years now, next year. And I've known you for that long as well. Actually, we've started gaming together right when I started gallon give or take. It was pretty early. I don't know if I had started by the time we started gaming or if I was getting started. I can't really remember. It, it was, was all, really I, close. Yeah, it was all at the same time because I was living in Lehigh when we started gaming together. Started gallon. So part of it is I've done this a lot. I've worked on over a hundred campaigns. I've ran almost 30 myself as gallant. I've ran others under other labels for other companies as a project manager, etc. I've released hundreds of products. We were, I released nine core books this year alone, not just counting uh, all the other supplemental material. And I've learned a lot and it can be hard sometimes when you have developed a repository of knowledge to find ways to effectively dispense that back. Like I could write a bunch of blog posts, but then I have to worry about them getting seen. I could do videos, but the same problem, right? Whereas right. if I want other publishers to succeed, the best way to do that is to work alongside them and teach them what I know because getting in the sort of getting in the trenches together allows us to learn from each other's experiences. And Chances are a lot of publishers I work with, I have more experience than them, especially if they're one person outfits. And I like to be a resource. I like to give back to this community and this creative endeavor. And I can leverage what I built to help somebody else gain some financial stability off of some of my work. I can teach them what I know that they might not know. And I often learn something and it reminds me what it's like to be on the other side of the coin instead of being a publisher. I get to sort of go back to the roots of, okay, I need to remember how I want to be treated in this role and treat people the same way. Right. And so it, it kind of fulfills a lot of what I would call uh, ethical and moral compass points for me in terms of publishing. That's really great. I think maybe the point that you left out is the fact that since we started this interview, you've already written three games. And so you don't have time to publish all of them yourself. That's an exaggeration. It was one. Thank you, Will. It, All right. It, it is a lot. And I, I tend to write a lot because I find I it's like exercise for me. 
my creative muscles and my publishing muscles and my game design muscles to get stronger by putting the work in, regardless of if I publish it or not. You know, and that's how yeah. uh, the game you're publishing that I wrote, Cyan Starlight, kind of started. I was just doing it as an exercise one day, and I got uh, maybe two thirds of the way done or so, and I was like, "Hey, this this is coming out pretty good," and you know, it it, it morphed from just sort of practice or exercise into the final thing. Yeah. I remember when you first sent me a copy of it and I looked at it and I thought, wow, this is, this is really cool. And it was already laid out and everything. And that was just kind of fascinating to me that it had, you know, that basically you conceived of it while you were laying it out. Is that right? How, how did that work out? Yeah. So I wrote that one into layout directly. And I don't normally do that one because I'm not a layout artist and I'm not good enough to do that all the time. And two, I think my layout artists would kill me because I would probably make lots of little mistakes that they would have to (laughs) fix down the road. But I had seen some other publishers talking about writing into layout and I, for myself did not inherently see any benefit in it, but I tend to believe that if I don't see the benefit in something that somebody else sees benefit in, I need to experience it as best I can to assess why or why not. Right. And so this was an experiment of, I had some art. I really liked it actually started with the art and the Mm. title. Like I started on the cover page and was just playing around with art and titles and kind of, I was like, and it all sprang from that single cover. Like I, I put that on there. I was messing around with the titles. I was practicing some layout and title design. And I hit on something I really liked and the image of the whole piece as a general, a general element really spoke to me. It was for those of you who uh, haven't seen the cover yet. And you're listening to this. It's a cover of an astronaut uh, walking across sort of like a plane of grass or some sort of vegetation with some hills in the background. And there's a single sort of blue, light blue, greenish blue sun or sky. We're not sky, but sun or moon, right? Celestial body in the sky. That's the only color on the page other than it's black and white. And I was sort of uh, playing around with that. And I ended up off shooting into this game just from starting on that cover page and working my way down the list Hmm. page by page. That's pretty incredible. What was it that drew you to the cover art? I know what drew me to it, but I'm. I'm curious, like what, what spoke yeah. to you about it? So if you want to see the cover art listeners, and we probably should have mentioned this in the onset of this, Oh, this interview is coming out the day the Kickstarter goes live. So <laughs> there is a Kickstarter for Cyan Starlight. You will find the link in the show notes. Heads up on that. So you can go look at the cover there and maybe back it, which is the point of all this. But no, so the cover spoke to me a lot on an emotional and mental level. I am, I am bipolar. Uh, I am specifically type two bipolar um, with a variation of what they call rapid cycling, which means my mood swings are, they they occur at a higher frequency than other forms of bipolar generally do. Mm -hmm. And, and a lot of that is to say everybody's for everybody who has sort of a mental, mental illness or neurodivergence 
what, even if the name is the same, it is often very different on a personal and individual basis because everybody's brain chemistry is different. So what yeah. my version of type two bipolar with rapid cycling is probably different from somebody else's who also suffers from it. But one of the things my bipolar has, has, I'll say done to me, which makes me sound like a passive victim. And I'm not sure I like that phrasing, but I don't have better phrasing off the top of my head is that I often feel, and often is almost all the time. I feel very outside and disconnected from communities. I am a part of, I feel very alone, even when I'm with people who I love and care about and like spending time with because the things that happen in my head due to my brain chemistry are always unique, even if they're similar to others. And that uniqueness makes me feel isolated because I feel like others can't or don't or won't or couldn't understand or relate. And even if that's not true, you know, that's, that's the mental illness lying to me in a sense, but it creates this ongoing for 20 years now feeling of pretty relatively complete isolation at a lot of times. That must be really difficult to deal with. How, how did that tie into kind of the, the art and the design of this game? Like, sure. Yeah. So science starlight is about being the last human in the universe and waking up for whatever reason from stasis from, you know, coming out of a wormhole, your, your science techno babble reason is to a degree irrelevant. What is relevant is the fact that, uh, you have emerged into a place where you are the last human. There are other alien species, other entities or civilizations or beings or intelligences around, but you are emphatically, as far as you know, the last human, which to a degree is an exaggerated reflection of how that isolation makes me feel like even surrounded by things. I am a, uh, I am ongoing in this position of being alone, no matter what's swirling around me in the cosmos or chaos. Jean, Jean-Paul Sartre said in his book about existentialism is a humanism. Uh, he said, man is undefined until he discovers and defines himself. And I'm paraphrasing relatively poorly there. But at its core, Science Starlight is about emerging from sort of an existential crisis and then discovering yourself and defining yourself in the face of isolation. And that cover for me really sparked that. And because those feelings are so close sort of to the surface in me all the time, it was really easy to kind of draw on this sense of melancholy as I started working through the game. Hmm. So how did you decide that this was a game? Because as you mentioned, you have, you make a lot, you write a lot of games and, and a lot of them, you know, don't ever necessarily see the light of day right. from anybody, but you, or maybe a few people that you share them with. How did you decide that this was one that, that needed to go out for people to see? Part of it was the amount of effort I had put into it by working directly into layout using stock art or art I had access to from Patreons and things like that. I was able to sort of craft from the start, this holistic view of a game. And 
it's in a sense it the game is kind of me sending up a smoke signal or tossing out a road flare saying hey i'm alone out here if you want to be alone together let's let's play this game together right yeah because i don't think i don't think this game is going to fix that for me or anybody else but it, it is sort of me waving a flag saying hey we're over here right and that and i don't know sometimes with that with games and releases it's just a gut feeling of this is good enough to release this you know or sometimes it's a gut feeling of hey i i could eat this week so i should release something <laughs> he says sardonically and cynically yet with a disturbing amount of emotional honesty there so the the part of it's just a gut feeling like i was looking at it going there's something here and having another publisher's eyes on certain topics is really helpful because i will sit in my own head like i can make a action movie rpg because there's no there's there's no personal or emotional stakes for me in that other than i like action movies and i spend a lot of time thinking about them right but this kind of game i think would i i felt would benefit from somebody else sort of writing herd on it to use midwestern term uh, to to sort of be overseeing it to make sure I didn't either wallow too much in self pity or it never come out or something right. Sometimes I needed somebody to be the buffer between me and this uh, catharsis that was happening with the game development. That makes sense. When uh, when you think about a game like this, like what what does you've written another game that's kind of in a similar vein and you mentioned it in the introduction to this, to this game. Tell us a little bit about, tell us a little bit about that one. So that one's a little more complicated. It's uh, you're referring to Carrion lands. Yes. That one is not out. Uh, you can't get it. Uh, there's another publisher is going to be picking it up actually. Hmm. Carrion. So if, if science starlight is about being alone, no matter what <clears throat> carrying lands is about punching back against an environment that wants to kill you all the time. Mm. It is, it is sort of to the, to the depression side of bipolar carrying lands is more the, maybe the manic side of the coin or the or that, that other side of the bipolar disorder. Right. And I, you know, and, I, I mean, I originally wrote Carrion Lands in 2018, 2019. It still hasn't come out. But, you know, I'm not, I, I would have to revisit it to see if I still feel that assessment holds correctly. But at the time, you know, that that's where I would have positioned them, I think. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. So are these, would you call them maybe paired games in, in a certain way? Not, not from a, you know, a setting or, or, Right. Theme standpoint, but maybe sister games, as it were. I, I would say they they are paired in the sense that they come from the sort of the same emotional place, maybe. Okay. But they're taking different routes out of that place. Their genesis might share a common origin, but the path they took away from that genesis is going to be different. All right. We all got bit by the same radioactive spider, and we're over here doing the Spider-Man <laughs> meme to each other. <laughs> right. Well, tell us a little bit about the system behind the game. 
how does it work? Like how this is a solo game, right? Yes. Uh, And that was important to me in the design because it would have felt like a betrayal to make a game about being isolated that you had to play with other people. No kidding. So having it be a solo game was, I think, key for me in the sort of the presentation and the aesthetic of the game mirroring the design intent behind it. There's a lot of tools that make a game work mechanically and not all mechanics are levers that you're pulling with dice and tables or cards. Sometimes those mechanical levers are things like a really blank spacious layout that makes the words on the page look isolated, limited use of significant colors, how many people the game plays and how it plays them. Uh, That all matters. That's all. Those are all mechanical levers as a game designer. I try to consider when I'm, sort of building these games. And so one of the reasons this game works the way it does is I based it off the breathless engine, which is a creative commons licensed engine by, and I apologize if I'm saying this wrong RP, I believe it's Fari games. It might be fairy. Uh, RP is from Quebec. And so I never quite know if he's using his English or his French pronunciations for me. It gets a little confusing sometimes for me because I'm from the Midwest where we speak bison <laughs> i assume i don't really know in the winter snow and snow and cattle that is oh, we're gonna have to we're gonna have to dig into that i have to know like about speaking bison at some point but that's it's a lot of grunting and mooing and smelling bad <laughs> okay have you met bison they're terrible smelling <laughs> so this breathless engine works off this degrading die system where every time you roll a die it steps down in die size so a d12 becomes a d10 becomes a d8 becomes a d6 becomes a d4 becomes gone and so every time you and and that's there to represent the fact that as the last human you have limited resources to pull on you to to bring things back you have to scavenge you have to find these these tools or these resources and maybe you're looking for a clue about humanity, but you're going to stop at this planet because you need fuel. Here we are. Right. Right. And breathless worked so well for that. And it's an excellent chassis for building really evocative games on the same system we use for SEMA, mm-hmm. which is a really beautiful game, by the way, if you haven't seen it. So, but breathless, if I'm not mistaken, is really built around character structure, Right this game has a whole additional component to it. Yeah. Tell us about that. Yeah. So there's, there's a character structure where you pick what your character sort of profession was before they became a spacefaring isolated human. And then you define your starship, which includes resources and attributes and all this sort of a secondary character sheet that allows you to manage or maintain these these, these elements, and it's what lets you move from system to system trying to find these clues. And so you're trying to maintain yourself, but you're also trying to maintain your starship because it's the last piece of equipment that offers you, you know, this thread to, to solve the mysteries that are in front of you. And, and they work off the same mechanical engine to a degree, but just with different resources or attributes to, to represent the difference between them. Yeah, that's really cool. That was something that stood out to me as I uh, looked over it the first time. I thought it was really, uh, really interesting how 
the dynamic really plays off each other between the ship and the, and the character. Yeah. And you know, I grew up cause I grew up in North Dakota. I grew up with a lot of sort of cowboy Western influence. Those were very popular movies. A lot of people locally were reading those books. We had like a cowboy days. like, And so this sort of almost mythical idea of the hero and their steed is something that's very present for me in a lot of things because a, a steed isn't just a tool. It's just not a resource. It's also a friend. It be, it, you, you sort of personify it, even though it's not a person uh, you, you add, you assign these human elements to it. Uh, there's a term in anthropology for that. And I, now that I've said that, I don't remember what the term is, but it's there and it's a thing. It's not anthropomorphize. Is it? I don't remember. I don't know it either. I'm sorry. That's all right. Yeah, I'm smart, but not that smart, guys. That's what you <laughs> should get from that. But so the idea of this sort of this steed or this mount becoming more than just a tool or a resource or a vehicle, but becoming sort of like a steadfast companion is something that one, you know, sort of a uh, story structure wise is very familiar to me with how I grew up. But two, I think, I think provided an avenue of attachment for the character in Cyan Starlight because you can attach yourself to your ship and it can become a thing that when it gets hurt, you flinch. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, I think that's important because that's what somebody in the situation would do a lot of the time. Yeah. You've made other games that uh, this isn't your first science fiction game. In fact, you've made quite a lot of science fiction games, if I'm not mistaken. I made a few. How does how does this kind of differ in terms of like how the ship and the character work? Because I think you even have some other games where you have, you know, the possibility to have a ship. What's the tell us a little about that? Well, you know, that's a in several of my other sci-fi RPGs, ships are treated as a means of narrative conveyance. They get you mm-hmm. from point A to point B. Mm-hmm. And that and that's still true here in Science Starlight. But in certain other games I've made, there are times where I've just hand waved the ships away because, you know, this is not what the point of the game is. We're mm-hmm. going to focus in on something else. Or, you know, the ship is run by a team. So here, I think the big difference is the ship is treated as a character in that you you make the decisions for it, but it functionally runs itself. Your player character isn't doing much to sort of maintain the ship directly um, because that, that's not how the game works, right? The ship has resources. They deplete. Right. Then you land and you go get more resources for the ship, right? It's almost, it's almost like a, like a giant sort of engine where you are funneling more fuel into it, regardless of what the fuel actually means. Right. And I, you know, it might not be that different in some ways from other sci-fi games I've decide, designed, but I would say that the fact that it's solo and the way the ship stats integrate into some of the gameplay procedures probably makes it stand out, even if yeah. the mechanical design behind the ships is not as different as it might appear when you glance at it. I mean, sheet to sheet, maybe not that different, but I think in how it actually applies and how it works, definitely. Maybe yeah. let's talk. Let's talk a little bit about the gameplay loop. So, yeah, it's, it's a solo game, and all solo games have to have a pretty tight gameplay loop. But uh, what what's the gameplay loop like in Science Starlight? 
Yeah. So from a high level, you would move into a new system, uh, which we represent with a hex map. Just each hex is like a new star system. And we sort of pretend that they're, you know, roughly the same distance because it's just easier. Mm-hmm. Science is complicated. So you move into a new system and then there's a series of procedures, which I call protocols uh, because it's science fiction. And these protocols have you move through certain steps involving checking to see what is in the system, checking to see what threats there are, what resources there are. And then you make a decision of if you're going to leave the system or disembark your ship to explore a planet or a space station or something like that. And so it sort of it sort of revolves around this gameplay loop of moving from hex to hex and deciding how much you want to investigate. Okay. And, and I would say that's the core gameplay loop. Once you investigate, the gameplay loop expands into, you know, various enemies, sort of uh missions that you might need to solve or overcome, etc. But yeah. You mentioned the some of the different types of threats that you might run into do you have a favorite oh the uh the prophets Mm. the prophets of uh nivisia i think i called them in there Uh, yeah uh, a little portmanteau of larry niven and the nicene creed uh, (laughs) which was a deliberate choice yeah, they're sort of these maddened preachers who wander from planet to planet, stirring up sort of this cosmic horror meets religious fervor thing, and almost like a virus that's cur- that's inflaming various organs in the universe. Oof! And they were a lot of fun to write. Just their sort of their action table and the names of their abilities, and I got to get a little purpley prose there. That's always fun for me. I don't get to do that very much anymore. <laughs> yeah, that is pretty fun. What? Let me ask you. So where are we? We're we're doing pretty good on time. We're doing great. Maybe let's change gears for a minute. Fire away. Let's talk about let's talk about you. Oh no. What what kind of what kind of sci-fi RPGs do you like when you go to play a sci-fi RPG? So my favorite sci-fi RPG is Traveler, which something told me you tells me you already know that answer. Because <laughs> I think I made you make a few Traveler characters in your time. There is a possibility I've made a Traveler character or two. Yeah, uh, I love Traveler. I and I like it for I think uh, based on what I've seen at least a lot of reasons people don't Uh, Mm. i like it because i love the spreadsheets of economic values and like for me the perfect traveler gameplay loop is loading up my ship flying from planet a to planet b selling the stuff on my ship for a profit loading up my ship flying from planet (laughs) b to planet c like i can solo play traveler just by like doing the economic travels Mm -hmm. like that's all i care about because I, i find it so fascinating this idea of a space mortgage on your starship and like <laughs> trying to make it like the, the, the sort of the sci-fi high adventure, the firefly, the star Wars stuff, the uh, there's an Imperium. There's that's right. all great. And I do enjoy that. I'm not, I'm not saying that's bad, but for me sort of the, it, I wouldn't call it the gritty because I don't think it's as gritty as something like maybe uh 
scum and villainy esque or Firefly esque or you know Han Solo and Star Wars esque. Sure, but I would say sort of the the we're working folk just trying to make ends meet bit mm-hmm. of Traveler really really kind of twigs for me, and I love that. Like there is something in there that just has grabbed me and never let go. And so Traveler yeah. is my go-to, but I don't get to play it much because pitching your game to your game group of guys, we're going to have a space mortgage always really falls flat. I've learned they just kind of <laughs> inherently go, why would we do that? Everybody I'm loves like, space mortgages. Don't they? And the answer is always no, no, <laughs> no. My spreadsheets. Famously, I guess, right. Traveler is the game where, you absolutely can die during character creation and character creation is quite an adventure in, in and of itself. Yeah. Traveler is fantastic. I love the fact that you get a character at the end of it. That might not be what you were intending to play when you started. And I think that's great. I, I think it forces you to stretch as a role player and a gamer. And I like that a lot. What do you think about that? I mean, I know that was that was a big trend in the 80s. You'd see a lot of games like that, like Rollmaster like or like Life Path. Yeah. But I'm Life Path systems are great. I'm seeing sort of a recurrence of that. Good. Is that every like every game should have a life path system? Okay. I line in the sand. This is my hill. I mean, is a I'll, I'll give ground on this hill. I'm not really gonna fight over it, but also I'm not gonna concede. Yeah. Every game should have a life path system. Says the guy who has never really worked more than one or two into all of his games. <laughs> Is there a life all... path system system in Cyan Starlight? Not at all. Oh, okay. Well, no. That's... Take it up with the publisher, though. They didn't yeah. tell me to write it. Yeah, that guy's a jerk. Okay. Right. No, I mean, I, I say that sort of jokingly. I don't actually. I I don't believe every game would benefit from a life path system, but I. I, I don't think a life path system would really harm very many games either. Like I think they're engaging. I think they're interesting. I think they do a lot, especially if you sort of have an implicit and or uh, or not and a not explicit or a non-canon setting. They do a lot to carry a lot of the heavy lifting for implicit world building. Mm-hmm. If you look at Traveler in the Mongoose Winnie Traveler book, where it's decoupled from their setting of the Third Imperium. The fact that the professions are still called Star Marine, Space Navy, right? And and like they have all these little events and those events say things and they tell you a story and you can kind of piece together a setting that makes a lot of sense out of them, but they never have to explicitly tell you about the setting. And I yeah. think that's really fascinating. So, I mean, I think there's a lot of great stuff in life path systems. And I mean, maybe we'll do one as a stretch goal for Science Starlight, I guess. I don't know. Ooh, okay. Or maybe I'll write a prequel game that has like this. Yeah, we should traveler. talk with the ooh, we should talk with the publisher about that. That's a great really idea. crunchy traveler prequel game for my really narrative <laughs> so <laughs> whiplash. Uh, you got it? You need it. <laughs> okay. Well, I think that was a good, like I like that as a diversion. It's interesting because I just spent some time at Pax Unplugged and I heard from quite a few people who are like, hey. I like this idea of like randomly generating a character. I think it's kind of making a, I think it's kind of making a circuit. I randomly generate all my characters. Yeah. I just throw dice and then that's what happens. Done. Do it. Even if the game doesn't have a life path system, I'm just rolling dice to figure out what I'm doing. (laughs) Yeah. Amazing. 
Well, let's let's talk about uh, a little bit more about you. What about you know? So you've been doing how long have you been doing full time game design and publishing? As my sole source of income since the end of 2020. So this will be okay. the, uh, on January 1st. It will have been three years full time. Wow. Okay. Congratulations. Thanks. Yeah. It's very cool. How, yeah. how do you stay creative and motivated with, you know, so much kind of writing on that work all the time? It's hard. I mean, I burn out. I, I, just frankly, it's hard. I, I don't have a perfect answer for that because I go through periods of burnout where I struggle to write. I go through period. The, I think the thing that I've learned to do as having multiple things to pivot to. So if I'm feeling burnt out creatively, I pivot to sort of small business admin stuff like shipping packages, stuff that doesn't require the creative muscles, things like that, because there's always enough, there's always more work. And I think it's, you know, you can force the creative work to a point. And I'm a big proponent of, the thing, it doesn't matter if you're, the words you're writing are good, bad, whatever. You just got to put something on paper because you can fix it once it's on paper. You can't mm-hmm. fix it if it never gets onto paper, right? So I always try to hit my writing goals for the day. But if I'm feeling really creative, I'll keep going. But if I'm not, I will pivot to things like marketing, shipping packages, stuff like that. You know, I try to pace myself. I spend time with my family and my dogs. I play video games. I go to, I don't mean I don't go to a lot of movies, but I watch movies and read book, read a lot of books. I've known you to watch a movie or two. Yeah. I, it, I was just talking about this with my wife the other day. We, I think I can count on one hand, the number of movies I've gone to in theater since like the end of 2020. Oof, wow. I just don't do it much. Like and I still love movies. I watch them all the time, but I just don't really go leave my house to do it anymore. Yeah. I do like movies though. We're not doing it as much as we used to either. I, I do definitely blame the pandemic for that. What, yeah. what, well, speaking of that, like any, what's your most recent favorite science fiction movie you've seen? Ooh. Hmm. Well, the last movie I saw was Napoleon. I went to that last week. I did go see that in theaters. I, Verdict. Yeah, it's fine. Okay. I did. I normally love Ridley Scott historical epics. Anybody who knows me knows that, but this one, I just, I just didn't click with it. I don't really have a good reason why other than I didn't. And hmm. okay. as I've gotten older, I've learned like, that's okay. Sometimes I don't have to understand everything all the time. And this one, it was a good movie. I like it was pretty, it was well acted. I mm-hmm. I just, I it didn't click for me. There was some stuff I didn't like about it with time jumps. And I think I just was like, me, yeah, it's fine. Makes Not sense. upset that I saw it in theaters, but if I had waited to see it at home and saved myself the money, I'd probably been a little bit happier. What to say it was bad. I I think the last science fiction movie I saw in theaters was the last or was uh Rise of Skywalker. Oh, okay. One, I don't think there's been a lot of science fiction movies hit in theaters. Yeah. Dune didn't come to theaters the first time, did it? The first Dune? It it actually did, but it simultaneously <laughs> released on HBO Max. I know I watched least. it at yeah. home the day it came out. Yeah. I will probably see Dune 2. <clears throat> mm-hmm. I am loving it. So it's not a movie, but my current favorite sci-fi thing is the foundation TV series on Apple TV, Oh, which I like the books. And I was very excited when the TV series was getting made. And I've been very excited about sort of how they've taken a lot of the concepts from the books. So it still feels like foundation, but they've reworked them into something that can be filmed and put on TV because I do think it would have been difficult to pull off. I'm not going to say impossible, but I can certainly see why somebody wouldn't want to tackle 
a direct literal adaptation. I mean, the books are basically just a series of vignettes, right? It's right. not, yeah. there's no complete story. Yeah. And, and they, they sort of kept that, that attitude with sort of an anthology style series, but they've, they've added more connecting threads, which makes, which I think makes it hang together really well. And watching Lee P. Pace tear up the screen every time he's oh, it's just always a golden yeah. opportunity. So, uh, yeah, no, I'm a big fan of Foundation. Love it. It was a big influence on Science Starlight. I was watching it like a little bit before I started working on it. So I'm sure there was some elements there for it. Uh, there are a few callouts to or um, homages, I think, to classic sci-fi in this game. Several, yes. Yeah, at, le- at least two. Three, maybe, maybe I think six, maybe, maybe 15. Yeah. There's a bunch. Yeah. yeah. Cool. Yeah. What excites you about the game design industry today? Oh, mm. I think, I think there's three things and one of them is a double edged sword. Um, but I think, I think is more good than bad. So we'll start with that one. So the one I think is more good than bad, even though I think there is some double-edged blade there to watch for is how accessible it is becoming to publish material because it's so easy to make PDFs now with accessible tools. Um, it's easy to generate upload something. People are releasing more systems under CCBY, things like that. I think if anybody wants to become a game designer, there are more tools out there to do that successfully with a lower barrier to entry than there ever have been between print on demand, digital and all these tools. I think that's great. I think that's essential. I think it's key. The, 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 the harder side of that. Uh, and I don't think this is, I think it's just a thing, you know, one should be aware of and watch out for. I don't think it's inherently a problem per se is that because there's so much content out there now, it does get harder to, develop your own skills because it's harder to consume quality material and learn from it. Mm. Right. Like, so it's, it's, so when I say it's a double-edged sword, I don't think it's bad that everybody's out there, but if everybody's out there cutting their teeth together all the time, you know, you can't learn from people who are more experienced because you, you can risk falling into this sort of feedback loop. So I think if somebody is serious about becoming a game designer and sort of learning the art of designing tabletop role-playing games or tabletop games, you have to make a conscious effort to experience new things to make sure you move outside of this little ecosystem and kind of push up against new ideas for yourself to grow. Yeah. So I think that would say, I'd say that's a double-edged sword there. And the other thing I think is really exciting is this is something I've been talking about for a while that I, I finally see happening and I'm excited to see it is tabletop games are learning to sort of sort of, reintegrate ideas from other media or technology that they borrowed from tabletop games. So like you have tabletop RPGs and they formed a lot of early video game RPGs and still do to this day, Baldur's Gate Mm -hmm. three. Right. And, and RPGs have never been very good about sort of stealing back what was stolen from us, not in a negative way, but taking that right influence goes this way, but it's not coming back the other way. Right. And so, but I'm seeing it, that shift, you know, and I think that's really cool. And I think it's really important that as that we learn how we can reintegrate these other ideas back into tabletop gaming space. I've seen some of that with board games as well. Yeah. Lately. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, and I, I've been saying that for a, 
for a bit and I and I haven't been in a position to leverage, you know, sort of that practice what you preach, unfortunately. Uh, just mm-hmm. the kind of work I've been doing hasn't had the room to do that as much. But I think there's space to do that. And I'm excited to see it start happening. And I've got some stuff in the works finally that I had some time to sit down and see what I could learn from that. Yeah. I think I saw something. I think I saw something on one of your social medias uh, previewed that looked like it might've had some of that in it the other day. No, I know it's probably my personal Facebook page. So don't go uh, looking for it, listener. Okay. Well, I think that's awesome. So maybe another question around game design. Yeah. With respect to incorporating kind of elements of inclusion, uh, what do you, like, how do you approach that in your game designs? What do you mean? I I, I need some clarification, I think. Yeah. uh, Just incorporating elements of sort of diversity and inclusion. Oh, I mean, I, that's an interesting question. So one of the things that's important to me because I feel so isolated all the time is that folks who experience my games and the community around my games don't feel that isolation. Mm-hmm. I, I I tend to think generally games are for everybody to enjoy. And so the the couple ways you do that, you know, mechanically you make sure there's options for different kinds of character things. Or you try to write your games in a way, but like, for example, I consider things like colorblindness. I have a brother who's very colorblind. Um, and so I will often have him check art and be like, Hey, I was thinking this might be difficult. What do you think? You know, I use a bunch of resources like that. Um, we've experimented with uh, various supposedly dyslexic friendly fonts in some of our layout stuff. We've tried different forms of layout, you know, and so there's, there's this element of always trying to see if there's a way you can improve because I mean, from a selfish perspective, the more people who can use my games because they're easier for them to access, the more money I'll make. Right. So from a purely fiscal perspective, I lose nothing by checking to see if I can work with the dyslexic font or making sure something doesn't cause colorblindness issues. Right. The, the the amount of money I'll make off one or two sales for that probably outweighs the 10 minutes it's going to take me to check. Right. Um, but other two, I just, I want more people to game with like, and the, so the more I can get my games to people who can enjoy and experience and interact with those games easily and without unnecessary barriers, the, I think the better off we're going to be. And I'm going to be, cause I'll have a robust, interesting game group. Yeah. That's, that's a great perspective. I like that a lot. With a game like Cyan Starlight, how did you how did you balance, you know, sort of that creativity that you were looking for and that uh, you know, exploration of catharsis that you mentioned mm-hmm. earlier, right? With playability. Yeah, so <clears throat> I think the big piece there is that unlike a lot of RPGs, there is a definitive ending to Cyan Starlight. You can play it to a point where the campaign ends and not in the sense of we're out of story, but in that the game will say, okay, you're done now. If you want to keep playing, you have to start over. Mm -hmm. And that's because as a last human, you have to balance this isolation 
Um, and you might find enough clues to get an answer as to what happened, or you might succumb to that emotional, uh, that emotional exhaustion and duress and the game ends. And so for me, that, that balance isn't the fact that the game sort of posits that there is a linear flow and, and it's a big flow. There's a lot of ways you can go there, but eventually sort of all, all game, all lines in the game mechanics lead to this idea of you either found out the secret or you didn't. Yeah. What does that look like finding the secret? Well, <laughs> so the game features a mechanic called insights. Insights are things you can find on various locations. Um, they're generated using some of the solo tools. And there are 24 possible insights and they're sort of paired in sets of eight. So when you find the first one, it's going to be one of the eight from the first set. And the second one is to be one of the eight from the second set. And mm-hmm. so that, that functionally makes 512 possible combinations that tell you in your campaign, how the game ends. And they're written more as like narrative prompts. They, they tell a small story, but that interpretation is kind of left vague because obviously I don't know what the game you did at home looked like. Uh, so you'll have to sort of marry those details together and the narrative there, but uh, they are designed to sort of form an ending and each there are five. So there are 512 unique sort of narrative endings that you are prompted to integrate into your campaign. If you find all three insights, hmm. alternatively, there's uh, you can be, you can, succumb to despair and then there's an echoes table you roll on that leads to you know uh a sort of uh well i mean we'll call it what it is it's uh it's unfortunate outcome for the character due to mm-hmm. despair and to me yeah. it was important to include that because that is part of living with bipolar disorder <clears throat> this this idea that you don't always get a happy ending because your brain isn't going to let you right. And that's not, it's not an attempt to glorify any sort of self-harming behavior or anything, but it would be dishonest to present a game that was drawn from bipolar and pretending that every outcome eventually was sort of this positive take. It would be emotionally and intellectually dishonest for me to have done that. And I think it's important that the game presents both sides of that coin because it wants you to feel sort of that emotional weight. Well, I, I think that's part of some of the value proposition for the game. Honestly, is that it, while no one can ever fully understand what's going on in someone else's head, like you mentioned earlier, and I fully subscribe to that. It, it is possible to potentially walk, you know, a little bit in someone else's shoes and get a sense, even if it's just a really vague one, right. Of what it might be like. Yeah. And, and so, yeah, I, I think that's really, I think that's really important. Are there any game concepts that you, that you, uh, really love that you would have liked to put, put in science starlight or, uh, anything that, you know, maybe you're still looking for a home for because it didn't fit in this game. I have some ideas that were left on the cutting room floor. So Science Starlight uses technology to help tell the end of this solo story. So rather than put it all in the book, 
what we've done is you generate these insights and then you go to a website where you plug them in and they give you each narrative prompt and you slowly build your ending. And I, and I think that's really cool. I think it's a way of using technology for solo RPGs. I haven't seen before personally. Um, I'm not going to call the technology super innovative because it's just a web page with like some drop down numbers that generate prompts. Right. But no, it's, it's not that innovative because I wrote it. <laughs> well, and, and it's technology and it's just, I think it's using existing technology in a way that m- will feel innovative when you put them together. Right. Sure. Yeah. Which I think, it, which I think is the goal. How can we use accessible technology to tell new stories? And so for me, I would love to do more with that idea, I think. But as I'm not a technology guy, you know, I, yeah, I'd be like, yeah, we should just build a whole virtual tabletop for the game. Let's do it. Right. <laughs> like, I don't know what that cost or looks like. Whatever. Not my problem. <laughs> I have no idea of the scope of that. I mean, I do because I worked in software and I know, of, but you, you, my point being, uh, I think it would be difficult to have included more without overshooting the mission statement of the game, I think. But yeah. I would love, you know, for example, to have like QR codes hidden in the art that lead to clues, maybe, uh-huh. or things like that on the bottom of the page where we have these like things you can plug in on the website that maybe unlock in game, like integrating that technology in the game a little more fully without compromising playing the game without technology, mm-hmm. which I think is the balance tabletop RPGs struggle to strike is how do we use technology to improve the game without compromising the core value, which is a physical game you play with your friends. Right. Or in this case, a physical or digital game you play by yourself. Have you seen any games that do something like that? I've seen games that try for, with various degrees of success. Um, Invisible sun comes to mind. They, they hid stuff all over that black cube. And they have mm-hmm. their own Invisible Sun like campaign manager app that's designed for offline play. But it mm-hmm. is mostly like a messaging board with some character details and stuff loaded in for campaign management. You know, I've seen I've seen various attempts at different kind of things. But yeah, it's hard. I'm and I'm not sure I don't I don't have a good enough grasp on the technology. I would need to have a technology person like sort of sitting alongside me as I made the game, making sure I one stay in scope and two you know, maybe proposing stuff I don't know can be done. That might be interesting, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, is there a way to like make it so like if you scan in a page, it does something like that would be cool, right? Like, yeah. or or a companion app that tracks some of this for you, you know, stuff like that, right? Like, I don't know what any of that would look like or cost or make, but those are the things that interest me down the road, where I think we can learn from video games and other games and kind of pull back into the physical tabletop space. Yeah. Do you think there's any uh, space where more emerging technologies like VR or AR or AI might impact game design and publishing? I think you'll see VR and AR impact <laughs> virtual tabletops before they impact publishing per se directly. Because mm. I, I, I certainly see the pathway to how VR and AR intersects with VTTs very clearly. Right. Yeah. I sit at the table with my VR headset on. You sit at your table with your VR headset on and we play, you know, an RPG and we see the same battle map in the minis in this sort of virtual space on my table. Right. Right. I guess that would be ARG technically, but I think the difference is ARG overlays on your physical space and virtual reality 
is it's you all, move in a physical space, but it's all virtual. Right. Right. But both of those, I think there's that value proposition really clearly for VTTs. So I wouldn't be shocked to hear about something like that coming out eventually mm-hmm. and soon, frankly. It might be interesting to see something in addition to that for AR. I mean, I think you might even have, maybe you're sitting at the same table, but people are right. using AR and getting some kind of additional right. benefit like out of that. What if my character sheet was in AR and yeah. I had dice rollers in AR and I could send stuff or whatever, right? Like, yeah. I think there's a lot of options there. Hmm. But again, for me, speculating on them is more, I have a very basic understanding of technology and software from mm-hmm. my corporate jobs. And that mostly means I know enough to know I don't know anything. Right. And so I'm saying, I think this makes sense to me. Like having worked in app development, I can see the path, assuming it's similar, like how somebody will end up there sooner rather than later. But yeah, I don't know. I mean, it would be interesting to play something like Cyan Starlight in AR. Like it would be kind of crazy. Yeah, it really would. Okay. Well, I think we have time for what? Maybe one more question? One more question. And I'll keep my answer brief. All right. Is there a particular moment or achievement in your career that you're particularly proud of? Shout something awesome out to us. Jeez. I think I think the biggest thing I am proud of is that I've managed to, with minimal compromises, build Gallant Knight and our associated community into something that is positive ethical and fair to both creatives as well as the community space that it exists in. Like regardless of anything, I hope that when I leave the game industry, I'm not remembered because I made the best games or I was the most financially successful, but that I did a really good job at helping uplift the community and make the space better for people who make games. Love that. That's an awesome spot to end. Yeah, I think so. So, I'm going to rest control of my show back. Will, thank you, you can, for yeah, hosting. You can have it. Absolutely. Uh, that was a delight. Uh, so I always end on a couple of questions that are pretty key here at radio free RPG. Um, and so I'm going to turn them to you. Ah. Uh, I know you weren't prepared and I apologize. Normally I brief everybody with my little press packet, but since you were hosting, I didn't give you a press packet. <laughs> it's my fault. So what is an RPG that had a significant design influence on you and maybe a better question for you as a publisher is what is an RPG that made you decide you wanted to be a publisher because it's different. That's, that's a different decision than making a game. You like produced a game. You went, you didn't just write it and then have somebody else make it. You handle printing, you handed, you did the full publishing house suite of options here. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Interesting. That's a that's a harder question than I thought it would be. Why why on earth did I choose suffering? It's a great question. Well, it's not entirely suffering. I think Hobbes would say it's because that's what humans do. It's because yeah, that's because that makes sense. Well, no, here's here's the short answer. Like I don't know if there's any one particular game that inspired me to become a publisher. But I will say that it's kind of my incessant need to learn a little bit about a lot of things that eventually drove me to become a publisher. Sure. Because 
I have this tendency to just learn more and more about a lot of things and get just good enough at them that I can be passable. And it turns out that that is in many ways the exact skill set you need to publish because there are so many things. <laughs> that is true. Yeah. Okay. I mean, good answer. So, uh, and the second question is, is there a question you've never been asked in an interview that you would like to be asked? No, I don't okay. know. Fair. All right. <laughs> well, just remember that for when we have you on to talk about some of your Adepticurus work, because you're doing some interesting stuff there. And I think yeah. we'll be having you back rather, sooner rather than later. Folks, I'm Alan Barr. This is Will Munn. Will, where can people find you online if they want to look for you? They can find me at adepticarus.com. That'll have links to all your social medias and other places where Will will be. Folks, thank you for joining us on this introspective and weird journey on our bonus episode double feature. And uh, I want to thank Will for making the time to come on and guest host. Uh, This was a fun experiment and I will replicate it in the future, I think. My absolute pleasure. Thank you. Folks, I'm Alan Barr, and this has been Radio Free RPG.